Assalamu alaikum, bismillah rahman rahim. Alhamdulillah, we're here, we made it. <laughs> it's been a hard, even though we just saw you guys on Sunday, it's been a hard couple of days. And so um, thank you to everyone who's been praying. Um, Sheikh has definitely been um, fighting the good fight against pain. And you know, um, it's, it's interesting. Um, when we have these moments where we're struggling with pain, of course, and, and illness, it just it takes us back um, to you know when things have been so difficult in the past, and alhamdulillah, you know I was sharing with some of the, the students some of the stories because we have so many stories, and they were saying you know you should share some of these stories from the past um, because they're you know they're just so many opportunities to learn from illness and and pain, and as I said before, if you if you haven't experienced it either yourself or with a family member um you, you truly don't um it's hard to relate it's hard to relate it's hard to to see um you know we we had even some people who who saw sheikh while he was in you know really ill and going through you know one of these um these pain episodes and it's shocking i mean it, it's it's really uncomfortable and it's very painful um and i think part of why um there's so much learning to be had is that these situations force you to sit and confront what you would never want to choose to confront by yourself. You know, it's like when you're, when someone is sick, you know, especially someone you're related to, your spouse, your, your parent, you know, your child, you can't just run away. Um, you have to sit with them. You have to be with them. You have to take care of them. You have to force yourself to, to see and to feel and and to do what you normally would not want to do and so I spoke about this last time how that this was so foreign to me before um, and even just being able to sit with someone for an entire day um, and you know really just kind of walk away just because you have to go to the bathroom or you have to do you know something like that but then you just want to come back and be with that person that's extremely difficult um, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting, too, because it reminds me of, you know, certainly all of the times that we went, you know, to the hospital. Um, and, you know, I think that the ethic that we are supposed to learn, and that is probably very fundamental to many, to Muslim culture, even if Muslim culture doesn't realize this is Islamic or not, um, is, is just how you treat the ill, right? So, so you know, like, Sheikh was funny, he, he was sharing also some stories with us. Um, and one of the stories that I thought I would share is when he was talking about how his Sheikh, um, when he was very young, um, got very sick. Um, and this was, I think, in, in Egypt or Kuwait. But there were so many students that came um, to be at the bedside of his Sheikh that the doctor came in and said, what are you doing? You're taking up all of his oxygen. You guys need to leave. You know, it's like there was standing room only. He couldn't even get in to the bedroom and it had to be out in the hallway. It was, you know, like just completely packed of people who came to show their love and support. And the doctor got upset and the wife finally said, okay, you guys need to go home. Sheikh was, you know, really dedicated, didn't want to leave. Um, refused to leave actually <laughs> he's like no I want to be here you know while my chef is ill and the wife had to finally tell his friends take take him take him and go home you know and so he was forced to go home and then of course you know at Fajr they got up to pray and came right back <laughs> so um, you know and and it's it was like 
something that I, you know, I have never seen or, or witnessed or experienced, but that's something that I think is, is so beautiful. Um, and certainly in our experience of all the times that we've been ill, you know, we, we haven't had that experience. You know, for example, in 2013 when Sheikh had a heart attack, we were in Los Angeles and I remember like, we've, you know, we felt so helpless and alone. You're really vulnerable at that time. And I remember Sharif had sent out a tweet asking for people to pray. You know, people knew we were in Los Angeles. We lived there for so many years and, you know, we were, people knew us in the community. And, you know, this community is, is very well known for throwing all kinds of parties and being there for one another. But, you know, in the midst of this heart attack, we were really alone. And the only person that came and brought us dinner one night, subhanAllah, was Rami, who was a student here. His mother had cooked and um, they lived in Orange County, which was like an, a like two hour drive away. And he brought the, this, you know, I, I still remember lentil soup, it was so good. <laughs> and I like, drove it two hours just to bring it to our house. And you know, we were just sort of like, we were so grateful and yet at the same time dumbfounded because you know, we lived in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles is, is, is its own county and Orange County is another county two hours away. So no one in our county, in our community, came forward and helped, you know, you're supposed to like cook dinner, bring food, help do things for a sick family so that the, the family members don't have to worry about normal types of things. And they can just care for the, the person who's ill. Like that is the Islamic ethic. You know, people step up and start doing things for the family. And so in the midst of a heart attack where he literally, we didn't know whether he was gonna survive or what the situation was, the only person who helped was one person, one family from Orange County. So, you know, it was just so striking. Um, but I think so much of it is um, also like a function of, of the society that we live in because, you know, we spent a lot of time in hospitals. Um, and, you know, those are really like, Sheikh was just recounting a story today that I wanted to share. I mean, I remember like when I would go with him, you know, whether it was like a, you know, a test of some sort, um, or, you know, or being in the hospital where, you know, you're like just there for days and days on ends. And, you know, I would be there or Tarek, his brother would be there or a family member, you know, someone would always make it a point that someone would be staying with Sheikh. And the thing that was so striking is the nurses were shocked. Like they were always like, oh, you have a family member here. Like it was so strange for them to see family members there. It's like people were ill in the hospital beds, you know, in, in the rooms down below, you know, on either side of the hallway, and you would not see family members, or family members would come and bring something and leave, you know, and it was like, it became the responsibility of the nurses to care for family members. And it was really heartbreaking because, you know, like, after the, the family members would leave, you know, oftentimes, like Sheikh was recounting, you know, he would, would always be in a room, like, within earshot of someone on the verge of death. And that person, whether it was a woman or a man, would oftentimes be in the last, you know, like hours or moments, and they would literally just be crying out. And I mean, I would, you know, I would hear that because I, I was there too. And it would be people that, like, there was a woman that we remembered that was like, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And like, literally for days, that's all she would say. She'd just say like, No, I, you know, leave me alone. I just want to go home or another man who would also be like crying in pain, where no words, it was just like, oh, like these are things that I remember, you know, and you cannot leave. You're in the hotel, I mean, in the hospital bed. You're in, you, you know, you can't not hear that. 
and it's so painful. And then you start thinking about, okay, these people are alone. Where where is their family? You know, they're obviously on their deathbed. You know, what? And and sometimes it's like scary because like Sheikh would would hear people like right before they die reacting as if they see something very scary and then they would shortly thereafter die but they would be screaming and reacting to whatever it is that you know they were seeing we of course know that it could very easily have been you know angels of you know coming to to, to collect a soul that didn't live a very good life um, and you know this was not something this this was something that would happen often and what was also very striking is the attitude of the nurses, because obviously they're left to care for people who come in and out. They had to develop, you know, a bit of a thick skin, and they were very, like, noticeably cold. You know, like I remember with the woman that was asking to go home, they would talk about her as if she was insane. It's like, yeah, she just, you know, don't mind her. She's just there, you know, wants to go home, whatever. Like, that was their attitude about it. And you know you cannot help but be in these situations and think about yourself. You know, like how would I feel if I was here in my hospital bed by myself, listening to these people calling out in pain? And Sheikh was often like that because there were times where we didn't have family members and I couldn't stay with him overnight. Um, you know, we had Mito who was young at the time, and there were many nights where I had to leave to take care of Mito, and and Sheikh was there by himself in the hospital bed with no family members, and so he was recounting how the woman who was crying to go home was just suffering so much that he started doing prayers for her and he started like asking God, you know, please, whatever sin she's committed, she's so she's suffering so much. Please just, you know, have mercy on her and take her soul and end the suffering. And when he started making that prayer, not long after she left, she died. And after she died, she, you know, he was saying that at one point when he got up to walk around, he entered that room and, you know, after she was gone and found that there was like a little bag of her belongings and there was like um, a scarf and maybe like a little um, notebook or a little wallet or something like that. And then also the dress that she wore when she came in. And so he asked the nurses, well, what's going to happen to all of that? And the, nurse, uh, the nurses told him, well, we, we contacted the family members, but they didn't respond, so it's really going to be up to the disposal crew, and they're just going to throw it away, you know? So these are things that are just, you know, again, you would never want to confront that unless you had to, but, but these are things that are a gift in a way, because when you experience that pain, you know, you, it forces you to think forces you to reflect on on your life like think about these people you know they ha had full lives they had dreams they had families you know and if they didn't live a good life you know think about people who pursue the zukraf right and they wanted their job and their you know whatever i mean we don't know what these situations were but in the end it all comes back down to that you know you could end up in a hospital room by yourself you know, if I'm sure for people who lived very good lives, you know, kind lives, you would hopefully at least have your family members with you in your last moments. But how many people, you know, live the, their, their last moments alone in a hospital room somewhere? Um, and so that, you know, it, it's, it's a really, I think it's a gift to, to be forced to, to think about that early on. Um, and think about how, how does that affect your behavior, how you treat people who are ill, you know, how, how, what is your empathy level for, for people who, you know, could be alone and, and how do you want to be treated? 
um, we've also had conversations here, uh, again, about like, okay, when you imagine you being that person laying in bed, and, you know, who do you want with you? Like, you know, when the moments when I've been sick, like, I, I, yeah, I would just want, you know, someone I love sitting next to me all day long, but who can do that, you know? Um, so it's, I think it's, it's just, again, it's, it's a real gift um, to, to learn from that, regardless of how painful it is. Um, but so just to, you know, we have, again, so many stories, but I, um, and I guess the last point I was gonna say is, you know, it's not that far away, especially when you are in the midst of a pandemic, because it's like how many young people have passed away that never thought that they would get sick and now they're gone. You know, and that this can happen at any moment um, to anyone. So, you know, it's, it's again like that. The, the lesson we learned in the surah, I think it was Sagashia, um, about how, you know, like time is this construct. We always think that we have more time. We always think that, you know, we don't have to worry about, you know, our actions or our, or our choices or, or even, you know, whatever's going on in our life because somewhere in the future, you know, who knows what's going to happen, right? But if someone were standing there with a gun to your head and that was the moment at which you had to make a crucial decision that, that affected where you know where you would be in the hereafter, you your you know, your sensitivities change and your decision your decision making changes. So through the gift of the, the education of the Sura, you know, if you remove that time element and you think about the actions that you take and their immediate impact, you know, that changes the way you, you, you live your life. And I think that's an extremely valuable lesson that you get, you know, for you know, aside from the surah, from just interacting with people who are ill. Um, so, anyway, um, inshallah, you know, I I hope that, you know, this is not the new normal of dealing with you know illness, but um, it, you know, every opportunity is an opportunity to grow and to reflect and to change your behavior, to increase your empathy, um, and and to help serve others. Um, who need help um, so that, you know, when your time comes that God will send people to help take care of you um, and, you know, hopefully in, in mercy and kindness and not just a cold nurse, you know, in the hospital that's doing her job. So anyway, with that, um, I, I'm really looking forward to another surah. What we're going to do today is, I know we didn't do the Q&A for Surah Al-Kaf, but um, Sheikh wanted to do Surah Al-Allah, so we'll do um, the Surah first, and then we'll do the Q&A for both at the end, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad, al-Nabiyyu al-Ameen. المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين وعلى آله وأصحابه واتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين دارم اللهم يا رب العالي العظيم اللهم لا تحملنا ما لا تقتلنا به اللهم لا تؤخذنا إن نسينا وأخطأنا اللهم لا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته الذين من قبلنا اللهم يا رب لا تكلفنا إلا وسعنا 
واغف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الظالمين يا رب العالمين I know I'm paraphrasing the last ayat of Surah Al-Baqarah. I'm not reciting them as they were revealed, but paraphrasing them. But the important thing is the dua that comes from the heart. May Allah not. May Allah not ask us to bear more than we can. May Allah forgive our mistakes. May Allah not charge us except with what we can bear. And may Allah's forgiveness and mercy always be there for us. For me, I want to say just for the sake of having it on the record somewhere and for history. My heart tells me that the teachings that I've offered in books like The Search for Beauty in Islam, Conference of the Books, or the more demanding approach of reasoning with God, or the, I think, very accessible commentary on the Quran, I believe in Allah Alam and Allah knows better, Allah knows best. That all of this are very important seeds for the trajectory of our system of belief in the decades to come. An illness, remember the Prophet said that when Allah takes knowledge away from a people, the way that Allah does that is to strip away scholars from a community. In my humble opinion, Allah Islamic circles are full of noise, repetitive, redundant, mind-numbing noise. There is hardly in all the chit-chatter that goes on in so many circles, there is hardly an original thought, a creative idea, And illness always reminds me that 
everything is a window of opportunity. I pray to Allah that there will be Muslims out there that will understand, that will see the value in what is being offered and that will want to create the institutions because the thought by itself, as the Quran itself teaches us, without the institutional framework that preserves and, nurture, and nurtures and grows this thought into various applications so and various relevances, um, thought becomes like the seed that you throw on the ground and that is haphazard doesn't necessarily produce anything regardless of how good the seed is but if the soil isn't there for the seed nothing happens i really pray that there will be muslims out there that will help preserve this thought and help students that would be committed to studying and developing and nurturing and advancing and propagating this thought. Because illness does really remind you of all the things Grace was talking about. And it really reminds you that like so many people I've known in my life that are not, not around anymore. Each one of us is a narcissist. All human beings are narcissists to one extent or another. We really think that the world is going to end when we end, and it's not. And like all the people that you've known that are now gone, in an instant, it could be your turn. I just pray that Allah allows me to download as much as I can before my time comes. And that whatever I download will receive the support that is needed. Because our state as Muslims in the world is very desperate, very desperate. Before we begin Surah Al-Ala, I want to underscore something about Surah Al-Kaf. I mean, um, one of the things that happens with pain is that you don't exactly remember everything that well. But just in case, I, I want to restate it so it's very clear. Surah Al-Kaf, as I'm sure you know, is one of the most profound surahs in the Quran and we could talk about so many things in Surah Al-Kaf but in the core of what the surah does the core of it the essence is that it offers you models all the models 
have to do with resisting resisting oppression and injustice. The people in the cave who withdrew to the cave, they didn't withdraw to the cave because the society they lived in was a just society. They didn't withdraw to the cave because the government that ruled their society was a nice government or a just government. They withdrew to the cave as a form of resistance to oppression and injustice. They realized that confrontation would have meant destruction. But Allah communicates to us, like Allah has did in Surah Al-Ghashiyah, that time, our perception of time, is far from objective. That time itself is very relative. So, for their message, 300 years for them to come to wake up and shortly after they wake up they realize that 300 years plus or 309 of Hijri years have passed and that during this time society has completely changed and then they die that's that's the narrative and the narrative of course is that Sometimes truth requires that type of withdrawal into the self. And as I said, although we Muslims unfortunately are often taught that every new thing is a bid'ah and every bid'ah is a dalala and every dalala is a nar, this is very dangerous. Can you imagine people that prohibit creativity? What do you think will happen with these people? So, I underscored that if you reflect upon the text of the Quran, the Quran itself is telling us a response injustice in which you disassociate yourself from the disempowered and weak and oppressed is never permissible. That is never an acceptable moral choice. Now I'll tell you, we have already as Muslims we fail on that test. Because I'll tell you in the in so many Islamic centers that when I was younger I was involved with, there was always the cliques for the rich and a clear awareness of those who were doctors, those who were engineers, those who were 
in tech companies who had money, they were very aware of the fact that they had money and they had their own social circles that were clearly distant and apart from the circles of people who didn't have money. And that is a huge moral failure. failure. And in my opinion, Allah will never aid a movement or a thought that embraces that type of discrimination. The other thing that I emphasize is that Allah tells us when you are tempted, to, when you are tempted to give in to the demands of prestige and zuhruf, the because they're very these, these types of social demands are very serious. The social demands that say you you know people belong to certain circles certain zip codes, certain neighborhoods, certain schools, all the things that define us as human beings. Allah says, adhere to the Quran. Hold steadfast to the Quran. Make the Quran your companion. And I suggested the idea of the Quran becoming our cave. That sometimes when dissemination and expansion is not possible, you withdraw into the Quran and the Quran becomes your hasl, your, your fortification. Then Surah Al-Kahf presents us with the second model, a model where again we meet a pompous, arrogant, rich person. But so pompous and so arrogant that this rich person imagines that they have a claim, that a demand upon God that in the hereafter, if any is going to be wealthy and rich, it's going to be me because of course I'm so wonderful, I'm so brilliant, I'm so accomplished, I've done, you know, whatever. That, and Surah Al-Kahf presents us with the model of, conf, of intercourse through discourse, where you are actually engaging the wrong way, the shaitani way, in discourse and conversation and with the prayer that Allah will in the end give the righteous way, will allow the righteous way to prevail upon the wrong way. So but that you can't control but you do your part in the type of conversation that we saw in Surah Al-Kahf. 
But then Surat Al-Kahf takes us to a third model. And if you reflect upon the third model and think about it carefully, you find, again, forms of oppression. You find an unjust society in which there are rulers who oppress people by taking what is not theirs. Whether they're taking a ship or taking a cow or taking taxes or taking whatever they're taking or taking your freedom, it doesn't matter. They're taking what is not, they're not entitled to. And then you find another form of injustice, but this time it's a cultural form of injustice. A type of injustice where children do not honor their parents. So the, the, the structure of hierarchy for respect and dignity has broken down. By implication, it's not true, it, it is, this is a society that is doomed to die. And I believe the whole story of Khidr killing that young man, the Ghulam, is a metaphor for the whole death of a society in which children don't respect their parents, younger people don't respect elders, the people don't respect their teachers, the, and, uh, and, y people who don't respect those who are more pious or look at them as examples or models to be imitated, that society is doomed to die. It's doomed to be destroyed. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. It's a society that will be eaten away by drugs, by gangs, by alcohol. It's a society that will be undone because the social fabric is undone. Then we come to the third example, and that's a culture, a society that has another type of injustice. It's a society that doesn't care about the disempowered like the orphans, doesn't care about the, Allah tells us, take care of the wayfarer, the traveler, the destitute, but this society does exactly the opposite. It doesn't care about the travelers, it doesn't help the destitute, and it, it doesn't care about orphans. And the remarkable thing is the contrast in Surah Al-Kahf between Musa salam which represents mosaic law, i.e. the paradigm of law, with Khidr, who represents real moral social problems, that law might not be able to fix. Law cannot get a child to respect his parents or her parents. 
Law cannot get you to respect someone who's more knowledgeable than you. Law cannot tell you to go seek a teacher and respect your teacher. Law cannot do that. Law cannot change what is in the heart. That's the remarkable dynamic that had to say profound is, is, is inadequate, more than a profound impact on the trajectory of Muslim, the emergence of Muslim culture and Muslim society. And then finally, the Zulqarnayn example, which now you have again the same dynamic of ignorance and oppression and injustice but here the advocate is not someone who's so weak that they're going to withdraw in a cave or someone who's so weak that they're just talking to the unjust and saying you know please change your ways here the advocate is someone who is aided with real power the marriage of goodness to real power. Zuqarnayn represents piety with power, but that power comes from knowledge. All knowledge is inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you pursue knowledge, what you are doing, you are effectively asking Allah for permission to share what is Allah's. And Allah either grants that permission or doesn't grant that permission, depending on the effort you expend. And could other, you know, there could be other things, but, but primarily the, 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 the tax that you have to pay is effort. So Zuqarnayn meets the first group of people and Zuqarnayn teaches them justice. The second group of people are so primitive that they're better left alone. The third group of people Zuqarnayn, again, it doesn't matter who this person is, we can even consider Zuqarnayn a symbolic construct. Why he's called Zuqarnayn is because, I believe, it's because he combines empirical knowledge with ilmul ghayb, with, with religious knowledge. And that, that's why he's called Tu Not You know, literally translated as Tu Horned. But it's not Tu Horned. It's like having the two, two destinies. Two anchors. Al-ilm wal-iman. These are the anchors. Knowledge and iman. And he, he refuses to take money 
from these oppressed people, the people who are oppressed by the powers of Jews and Jews, the powers of evil and chaos. And he teaches them something extremely valuable that requires a lot of commitment and dedication and application. If you are a student of Surah Al-Kahf and you are getting ready to build the first Islamic experiment in establishing a just society, understanding and internalizing Surah Al-Kahf becomes indispensable. Go back with this understanding and revisit Surah Al-Kahf until you memorize it. And the spirit, its spirit, will speak to your soul. And you will see precisely the entire flow of this amazing revelation from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So Surah Al-Ala, although you, you have in the Islamic tradition um, reports that claim that Surah Al-Ala is either Medinian Surah or that parts of it was revealed in Medina, uh, these are unreliable. These are clearly unreliable. And the, the reliable opinion is that it was an early Meccan Surah. And in fact, um, it is very likely that it was the eighth surah revealed in the Quran, uh, right after At-Takwir and right before Surah Al-Layl. Um, I did a tafsir for Surah At-Takwir and I did a tafsir for Surah Al-Layl. So it's the a very early revelation and we notice that all the very early Meccan Sawar um, demand that we understand something about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about Allah's self if you will so it starts with Sabbah Rabbika Al-A'la. We, of course, we know that in Sujood, we repeat Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, and there's a hadith from the Prophet attributed to the Prophet that says, commands us in sujood to repeat the first phrase of Surah Al-A'la, which is Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. And when we do our ruku'ah, the Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim comes from Surah Al-Waqa'ah. So we are effectively repeating from Surah Al-Waqa'ah in ruku'ah and repeating from Surah Al-A'la in sujood. And the First, 
Sabbah, which that expression, which of course we, when we say Subhanallah, for instance, is derived from the same um, uh, same word. It is a word of tanzih, meaning understanding that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and see even just. In, in our speech, like I, you, you repeated, even subconsciously, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is unlike no other. That's the essence of tanzir, that Allah is singular, and that all logic of creation and causation do not apply to Allah. Which means that not even the logic of time and space can be applied to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah says, understand that there are names. And these names, which of course later on the Quran shares with us a lot of these names are quintessential for understanding the singularity, the tanzih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you say Sabbihisma Rabbikal A'la, the immediate question is Ismullah is it it's to reflect on the name of Allah and the name of a Rabb. And as I said before, that a rububiyya is always is the essence of giving. And al-uluhiyya is the essence of the one and only who sets the standards, who, who is the origins of taklif, who the origins of an obligations. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is both at the same time. Ilahun wa Rabb. The tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to understand that the equation of justice is that Allah gives and Allah obligates. And that you are in creation, you are always a part of that fundamental equation that does not apply to Allah. Meaning that Allah is not bound to give, there's there, nothing binds Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give or to obligate, but that Allah chooses that for us because it is the essence of what is just, the essence of al-mizan and the essence of qist and the essence of adl. So fundamentally from the very beginning you are anchored in the understanding that there is no such thing as, well, I can take 
without worrying about what I have to give. It is a, a fundamental flaw in Aqidah if the attitude is, well, I perform certain acts that entitles me to a certain set of things and I do not have to think of consequences. So, Tazbihullah means Tanzihullah, the recognizing of the singularity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this becomes very important when we think of Allah al-A'la, because al-A'la is normally translated as most high. But high here does not connote a spatial relationship. High means supremacy and superiority, but Allah is beyond spatial relationships. So although Allah is an ala, Allah at the same time is a qareeb, the one who is near. Allah is with you wherever you are. So immediately Surah Al-A'la, like a lot of the very early significant surah, alerts you that the, to the fatal flaw of dealing with Allah in terms of human time and space relationships. And as we know, of course, this was very important because it was very different than the Jewish approach to understanding Allah and the Christian approach to understanding Allah. And it, and in fact, to the extent, to the extent that Judaism and Christianity um, came closer to the Islamic ideal or the Islamic concept of Allah, it is because of the Islamic influence. But because, again, as I said before, because Muslims don't write history, history is written for Muslims, by non-Muslims, that fact is always ignored. But if you study Christian theology at the time Islam came, at the time of the Prophet and Jewish theology at the time of the Prophet their conception of God was very different. And from the very beginning, Islam comes and says, Allah is not in a figure, a statute of Jesus in your church. Allah is not in a specific promised land. Allah is not located in a specific spot. Allah is not located in terms of your spatial relationship with spatial relationships, and that's why becomes so impactful. Okay. Now, there's another meaning to as-subuhiyyah, or the, the, the concept of sabbah, that 
Sabbah is, as we said, is a term of tanzih that you recognize the singularity. But Sabbah also means a comprehensive understanding that is the result of constant and diligent motion. So that is why in Arabic we say swimming, we call that sibaha. Because the idea was that you are swimming in an ocean. People didn't really think very much of swimming in swimming pools. But you're, dealing, you're swimming in an ocean, so you are moving in something that is endless. And at least, you know, in, in, the, in the medieval imagination. So, it is also an invitation, as so many of the Sufiask um, tafasir point out, that when you say, it is like saying, embark upon a limitless journey to understand the name of your Lord. In, in the language of Sufi-esque uh, uh, Sufi tradition or Sufi tradition, they say, Isbah bisirrak fi bahri ata'illah. That take your consciousness, take this consciousness, and allow it to transcend to the extent possible time and space to dwell into comprehending the extent of or the expansiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah has created from you know the most insignificant creature that you see to the most remarkable uh, galaxies that you see, the, the most grand visions to the smallest and most minute visions. And that that logic of creation is out of the self, meaning again, it is not subject when it comes to the realm of the divine your laws of causation and physics and physicality do not apply to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. Who, who fashioned creation, who crafted creation. Now, there have been among traditional Tafsirs, those who have tried to argue that Qaddar Fahadr is, is proof of predestination and the like. And of course, that's, that, that's not justified because all Qaddar Fahadr means is that realize that you exist in an infinitely measured creation. But Allah could have created this very measured creation 
But if Allah didn't give you the intellect and an instinct to comprehend and interact with this measured creation, as measured creation could have been, as, you know, as measured as it is, if you were just like, uh, you know, the way you're intellect was fashioned was that uh, it didn't your intellect didn't understand what water is didn't understand the difference between gas gases substance and a solid substance if your intellect didn't understand uh, the concept of what's what you eat for nourishment and what you what what you avoid because it's actually toxic There had to be a synchronicity between the created intellect and the created instinct and the measured and the carefully measured creation. So even your curiosity to know is part of Qaddara Fahada, part of Hudallah. Part of Hudallah, and I know that modern Muslims unfortunately have lost this part of their civilization, but part of Hudallah is that you become curious and you want to learn. And you say, oh, I want to understand how this works. Oh, I see bees. I want to understand their society. I see ants. I want to understand how ants live. That is part of Hudallah. Allah is alerting us to something that is very obvious, so obvious that we miss it all the time. Your impulses, including the impulse to love, the impulse to want warmth, the impulse to want companionship, the impulse to want to understand, the impulse, unfortunately, that is often abused, to want to control your environment. All of these are impulses that are part of what is supposed to be in synchronicity between the carefully measured world and the guidance of the, of the person, the guidance placed in a person. And this is precisely why when we, when the guidance placed in human beings, the hadhi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in human beings, when it is not in sync with the measured world, so the human beings takes the guidance and wants to abuse people, wants to control people, wants to destroy the environment, wants to corrupt the land, wants to kill things that survive for selfish reasons. That is why it is such a sin and a crime. That is why Allah says you deserve hellfire. Because Allah gave you instincts so that you can be in harmony with the measured world. But instead of harmony, 
you've created abuse, including one of the best things I, I've read, and I, I remember, I think this was in Ahya Alum al-Din, Imam Ghazali, rahmatullah says that Allah, for instance, reminds married people, وَلَا تَنْسَوْا بَيْنَكُمْ If you divorce, don't forget that there was a sacred bond between you and there is an obligation of decency. And Imam Ghazali says that this decency is part of Hadiullah. But he points out that unfortunately he sees people upon divorce become vicious monsters. And he says this is, or, this is a sin and a grave sin because it is a corruption of Hadiullah. Okay. والذي قدر فهدى والذي أخرج المرعى فجعله غثاء أحوى Now of course the, the, the literal translation of this is أخرج المرعى who created pastures these pastures are necessary for life the sustenance of life and yet these pastures, part of the logic of their measuredness is that they go through a cycle of disintegration and rebirth. That everything, all the early Meccan, not all, but I mean the nature of the early Meccan sword is that it constantly reminds us that, listen, reflect upon the logic of creation. The logic of creation is wedded to death and rebirth. So why do you think you are an exception? If you reflect upon the, the, the mathematics of creation, everything around you tells you it, it, you don't sometimes recognize that it's death and rebirth because you think of things in terms of human time. But if you go beyond human time, you realize everything in this universe is organized around the logic of death and rebirth. So why do you think you are an exception? Your resurrection is just part of that logic. There's nothing, you know, it is the most natural thing. But there is a further meaning to أخرج المرأة فجعله غثاً أحوى meaning that is often not reflected in translations. And that is أخرج المرأة we said that the literal meaning is the pastures and that cycle. But أخرج المرأة also is When you create a marta, that's ikhraj mara. When you create a marta, a marta is a pathway. So 
if I create pathways, I am engaged in the process of ikhraj, of al-mara'i, plural mara'i, or mara'a singular. And the pathways that are created, and this is often what you encounter in Sufi-esque tafsir. Uh, they're the ones that, that often talk, uh, discuss this at, at some length, is that the logic of creation is that there are pathways for those who are pathways for uh, for those who pursue the road of coveting pleasures. And there are pathways for those who want to pursue a, 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 something beyond the simple coveting of pleasures. So understand, it's like saying, understand, if I come to, to, to my son and I say, if you study, you will pass. What I'm saying is there's a, a pathway, there's a logic here. You cannot pass unless you study. Studying means passing. What Sufi-esque tafsirs especially talk about at length is that human beings often fail to understand that it's like when you, when you eat chocolate and you want to ignore the fact that, okay, um, if I eat chocolate, that means a certain amount of calories, that means I might gain weight. No, no, you, you know, you, you, you might want to ignore it, but you ignore it at your own peril. It's, that's the pathway. And especially in Sufi tradition, they talk about that the, the reason so many people get lost is not because they intend to be bad or intend to defy God, but because they fail to give the pathways their rights or their due. So they think that, well, you know, I really want to do X. So I'll just do it. You know, what's the harm? But if you go down this road, there are inevitable consequences. It is like logging onto a pathway. And so when a, 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 if a sheikh is, is well informed, giving advice to a student, they always say, it is not about a indulgence. It is about choosing a pathway in life. So, is that there are pathways that inevitably lead to very dark, 
dark and empty places. Understand the pathways that lead to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the pathways that lead to the opposite of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to the blackness and emptiness. If you're interested in, in this is just from memory. Uh, I, I just wrote it right before the halaqah and so, but uh, this is something I, from, you know, I memorized a long time ago but it gives you, a, I'm going to just read it in Arabic, and it gives you a sense of like how the Sufi language usually talks about something like this. So they talk about Marata' al-Rawhaniyya, al-Arbab, either al-Arbab al-Asrab, al-Arbab al-Asrar, or alternatively they talk about and what that means is you, you either there are pathways that take you to the elevation of consciousness to understanding the, the, the truth of the truth about Allah and creation and in turn make you understand your place in this creation that the wrongfulness of injustice and so on and I'll, I'll tell you uh, in a second uh, something about this or, or pathways that just make you think that there's so the Prophet والسلام, in commenting about Surah Al-A'la, the Prophet ﷺ used to advise Muslims to recite Surah Al-A'la. This was among the surah the Prophet ﷺ would advise Muslims to recite every day. And he would recite, he would often like to recite it in Surah Al-Eid, prayer, but that he would also, like, it's basically if you take all the hadith that mention Surah Al-A'la, the gist of these hadith is that is the Prophet saying, don't let a day pass without reciting Surah Al-A'la. And then he commented in this context that uh, the most beloved to Allah are أَحَبُّ الْخَلْقِ إِلَى اللَّهِ أَنْفَعُهُمْ in one version or in another version that the most beloved people to Allah are those who benefit the children of Allah children of Allah um, so that's what hadith the other hadith that the Prophet also mentioned in the context of Surah Al-A'la uh, it, it, it says um yeah, um, I'm forgetting the beginning of the hadith, but it basically that the closest to Allah is man yuhabbibni ila ibadi wa yuhabbib ibadi ilay wa yamshi fil ardi bin nasiha. Meaning that the closest to me or the closest to Allah are those who 
teach people to love me, to love Allah, and who do good on earth, so I will love people or ibadi, I will love my creation even more. And in Sufi tradition, this hadith, of course, raised so many discussions how you as a human being can make, be an agent to help people fall in love with Allah. And of course, Sufis especially talk at length about so much rides on how you present Allah to people. What you tell people about Allah, what you tell people about Allah's religion, if what you say scares people and terrifies people and makes people say, oh, you're, this God is, is, I don't get this God at all, it is, it is I mean, this, this hadith is, is it, although I've, I've not heard in the modern, in the U.S., I've never heard any, any Islamic sentiment, but it is it is in all the sikhah, I mean, it's widely reported in so many versions. But then the other thing is that you have to create, you have to help create con conditions in which people do good, not do bad. Because if they do good, Allah will love them more. So if you create a society in which, for instance, people in order to survive have to take bribes, that's, that's exactly the opposite of what this hadith is talking about. If you create a society in which men think they, they have the right to control women and beat women and insult women, that's exactly the opposite. These are... Hadith that I mean, this discourse is found moral foundations upon which everything else is built. And Wayamshi fil Ardi bin Nasiha means the way they, they, the way they, they conduct themselves on this earth is to always be a voice for truth. A lot of, unfortunately, a lot of traditional sources, they, they jump to the nasiha part and they ignore the love part. I remember a long time ago, some ignorant person, I, I gave a talk about love in Islam, and this person said, uh, what is your dalil that there is love in, in, in Islam? And it's such an amazing, amazingly ignorant but it's not her fault. I mean, this was a young Muslim, early 20s or something. But it's not her fault because it, the, the, the Islam she was raised with the, censored everything about the essence of what, what drew people to the Islamic message early on. Make people love me and facilitate or help for me to love my people more. 
And it is very significant that this was said in the context of Surat Al-A'la because of course this inspired the entire Sufi trajectory in talking about Okay. Then after the short introduction, we will teach you to recite. So don't forget. Now we'll come to don't forget in a second. That, of course, there's always, whenever there is a statement of anything in the Quran, there's always the reminder that everything is subject to Allah's will. For Allah knows the external and the internal. There, there, there is nothing that you are dealing with Allah who is beyond space and time but with a perfect knowledge of the created world. Okay. Or perfect knowledge, period. So, there is an interesting debate in the Islamic tradition. We will te teach you to recite the Quran. Is it saying and this is a grammatical debate. Is it saying that so you will not forget? So Allah has decreed that what the Quran will teach you, you as a matter of divine will, you will indeed retain it in memory completely? Or is it saying we will teach you the Quran so as a command, so don't forget it? So in other words, make sure that you don't forget it. And the majority said it's the first, not the second. But it's a, the reason for this debate, just so, um, is that uh, there are a hadith, there's one hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ was reciting a surah and he skipped over a verse. And after the, the, the prayer ended, uh, people said, we notice you skipped this verse. Has it been abrogated? And he said, no, I just forgot it. Uh, uh, and in fact, the, again, I jotted it down from memory, but I don't know if I did or not. Yeah, إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشَرٌ أَنْسَى كَمَا تَنْسُونَ فَإِذَا نَسِيت فَذَكْرُونِي that I am a human being that I will forget just like you. So if I forget, remind me. And you know, this, so some said, well, if, if it's possible for the Prophet to forget in prayer a verse, so it must be that this surah is, is a command. So it's like, you know, it's not, because if it was a guarantee that you'll never forget, then you would have not forgotten anything. Um, but as many have noted, I think it's, that's not necessarily the case. I think there's a difference between forgetting because you're exhausted, because you're in pain, because you, um, you know, your city's under siege, like in the Battle of the Khandaq. Uh, in other words, it's not that you've forgotten, because if someone reminds you, you remember.
but it is a momentary memory lapse. And I think that the Quran is clearly saying, in my view, that Allah will, in fact, make sure that you retain this Quran when it is important to recite this Quran completely. But this that doesn't make you superhuman, and it, it, you were going to have these momentary memory lapses like any other human being. Okay. Uh, when we are still Yusra, or, uh, yeah, when we still Yusra, this is how they always translate very little, and we shall ease thy way unto ease. Yeah, when we still Yusra, is that if being with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and reciting, meaning retaining, Allah's revelation. Allah is with you directing you for what is good for you, whether in this earth or in the hereafter. You know, of course, there, you know, at the first level is talking to the Prophet and saying that don't worry, Allah is with you. But as so many Muslim theologians and commentators noted that this goes beyond simply a warranty to the Prophet. But if you are with Allah, Allah is with you. And, but this relationship requires a type of trust that you don't demand things on your time and on your terms. So, you know, you have plans, you get sick, you have pain, and you say, this is extremely inconvenient. Why Allah? You know, I have all these plans, and I was going to do this, and I was going to do that, and I, you know, it, that's, that's not al Yusra. al Yusra is trusting that whatever Allah presents, it is in a warm, loving relationship because you love Allah and Allah loves you back. And so what you will, your, your reward, whether or your, 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 your ease could be on this earth, but it could be in the hereafter. It could be now, it could be 10 years from now, it could be 50 years from now. Who knows? I mean, you have the crux of Iman is to let go and to trust Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you if you if you are second guessing why Allah why then you haven't developed that trust okay and of course, from, notice from the very beginning of the revelation, as the Quran time and time and time and time again repeats to the Prophet remember, guidance is not up to you. As 
profound as the Quran is, whatever we give you, you have to remember there will be those who will remember, who, who will accept the message, and those who are those who will turn away and will refuse the message. And ultimately, their fate is their fate in the hereafter. Hellfire, where they will not neither die nor live. But ultimately, قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ Now, here, uh, the only thing I'll note is that uh, this is 14. Um, there is a, a, a sort of, in my view, an unnecessary debate. قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ Some said, well, oh, this means that it's saying those who uh, 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 those or the prosperous or those who will indeed prosper are those who uh, pay zakat, meaning pay the zakat and one. And then some you know said, well, on that basis, this must be a Medinian surah. Or uh, this was revealed in Medina because zakah was not revealed until Muslims were in Medina. But قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ doesn't mean uh, those who pay zakah will prosper. It simply means those who purify. Those who purify a tazkiyah is through prayer, is through fasting, is through helping the needy, is through serving human beings, is through paying zakah, Paying sadaqah, all of that is tazkiyah. All of that is purification. The purification, the act of purification, which the Quran will repeat and, and, and drill into Muslims, that dhikr. Dhikr is the is the 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 worship the ibadah, but it is must be accompanied by the acts of purification, meaning acts of service. So قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ تَزَكَّى وَذَكَرَ اسْمَ رَبِّهِ Dhikr and in salah and at this point when Surah Al-Ala was was revealed, was still in. A, in its very first early form, which is not, you know, not the full salah that we have now. Okay. Then, this reminder from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah is aware that the way we are, we prefer life on this earth because this is what we know. But the fundamental core act of belief is to believe in Allah's promise that in the same way that the entire logic of creation is premised on creation and resurrection, rebirth, is to accept Allah's promise that this 
is but a temporary life and that this is not the real life. But because you, this is a thing that you accept only if you believe that, believe in Allah first and, believe, and accept what Allah tells you as the truth. Interestingly, this uh, tidbit was, was often cited by those who argued that belief in resurrection and in the hereafter is not attainable through philosophy alone. Because some argued that philosophy by itself, without revelation, can reach the conclusion that there will be resurrection and there will be accountability. And you find this ayah often cited in these debates to argue that, no, you in fact need revelation uh, because philosophy itself will always get stuck with that you, you, you human beings will always gravitate towards what you know because you are human beings created within the limitations of time and space. Okay. And then in Musa, there are hadiths related in this context. Uh, um, the, the translation of the study Quran, truly this is in the scriptures of all the scriptures of, of Ibrahim, Abraham and Moses, Ibrahim and Musa, السلام, that there are hadiths that in which the uh, various companions asked the Prophet ﷺ, how many scriptures were there and then the, in, in relation or in response to this revelation. And they say, how many scriptures were there? And then the Prophet said, well, you know, there was um, X number of scriptures for Moses, X number for Jesus, X number. And some hadiths even say that, well, there, was the, there were scriptures revealed for the Prophet Ibrahim And the, in some of these hadiths, the Prophet even starts reciting some of the uh, uh, scriptures revealed to the Prophet Ibrahim. Um, I didn't study the, the chains of transmissions of these hadiths to the extent that I would have liked. Um, but I'm very skeptical about um, these ahadiths. Uh, I'm very skeptical about their authenticity. I, I have, from, the, from the, work, the research that I did do, I tend to believe that these were originated as opinions of um, um, early tabi'in, early successors of the Prophet, and then that with the passage of time, rufi'at ila nabi the ahadith marfu'ah, that then they went from being attributed as the opinion of a successor to actually being a hadith of the Prophet. Um, but we don't need to get stuck on, on this point. What, what we do need to remember is from the very beginning, and this is important because, it's, you know, again, Orientalists have confused Muslims a lot about their tradition. And, you know, you will read 
supposedly respectable scholarly opinions uh, by Orientalists that uh, the Quran was never interested in uh, uh, Musa and Isa and Ibrahim until the, the Prophet encountered Jews and Christians in Medina. Well, you know, this is so ridiculously flawed. And from the very beginning, from the very early revelation, is the insistence by the Quran and by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this same core message, there is nothing different. When Allah is saying, look beyond your material world, exist in harmony with your carefully crafted and carefully measured world, this has been the same message from the very beginning from the, from the father of Muslims, the Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, to the Prophet that most closely uh, resembles the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad والسلام, and that's Musa because Musa was a head of state and also a, a, a bearer of scripture. Um, and that, that's the same fundamental message time and again. That, that's Surah Al-A'la. It's a powerful, poignant um, reminder, but it, you know, it, the, it's easy, the temptation is to memorize it and just recite it quickly without reflecting on it. But remember, it, within these very few eloquent words is is like turning your clock, like saying, turn on to understand your, your cosmos. Turn on to understanding that while your God is beyond the law of creation, the laws of creation clearly points to your God. And that's no small feat. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. I thought that I would share one more story from the sidelines of pain. Um, this morning, which was really, really beautiful. And I, it was so beautiful. I mean, honestly, it's like, okay, I've been married long enough now that I know from certain words and certain tonality, grab the recorder. <laughs> it's like a story is coming that we have to capture. So um, I was saying to him that, you know, while he was in pain, a lot of times when, when he is not feeling well, we will turn on the Quran. And so we were playing Surah Al-Kaf from YouTube. Um, and it was um, Abdul Basit, um, you know, who was doing the recitation. And this particular video on YouTube had like the English translation, and so we could read, you know, the the words, the you know, the the English translation of, of the surah as it was going. Um, and it's like I don't know how many times we actually played it, you know, in the last several days, probably you know, fifty, hundred times it felt like. Um, but you know, so while while like I was sitting with with Sheikh and looking at the translation as it was going, and you know, and then remembering like, well, first before we had Surah Kaf, it was like, hmm, I wonder what the halakha is going to tell us because now, as I've mentioned before, I have just given up on reading the English translation before. There's no point because it has nothing to do with what we actually learn and the richness of what we go through in the halakhas. So, but I was just sort of curious, like, okay, you know, what does this surah really talk about? 
And then after we had the halakha, and then I saw, I went back again and you know, we were playing it again, and I was looking again, I'm like, oh my God, this is nothing like what we learned in this halakha. And I don't know how many, I, I could have watched it a hundred more times, I still would not have gotten anything from what we learned. So I, you know, I said, I said to Sheikh, you know, I told him this and I said, I, I honestly, I just don't get it. Like how, how is it that even the early Muslims at the time that they were receiving this message, you know, they're hearing the same words, like what accounts for that vast difference between what we read in an English translation and what the early Muslims received? Like, is it just the Arabic language? Is it just the context of, you know, where they received the message? And he said, um, yes, the Arabic does make a difference. Yes, the context makes a difference. But you have to understand, like, when you think about, um, you know, poetry, for example, he said, um, if we were to read, like, poetry of today to someone even, you know, a few hundred years ago or back at that time, they would have no idea, like, what our poetry means or what it's talking about. Um, and we have to understand that back at, at the time, like even at the time of Shakespeare, um, people would read Shakespeare and they had a completely different understanding of it than we have of it now. And so back at that time, you know, poetry was, was the way, it was like, you know, like the way we listen to popular music today. Or even classical music is another example where, you know, back at the time when everyone listened to classical music, they, they understood the meaning of it because it was interwoven in their life and the way they understood things. Like today, when we go back and we understand classical music or poetry, we have to read books to try and access the meaning of what, what did the, these things mean. Um, but back at that time, because, you know, this language um, was so, like, the way the Quran spoke, he, he said, you know, I, I'm convinced, like, if, um, and I hope I'm, I'm doing this justice, and, you know, maybe you can help me add in if I, if I miss it, but he said, you know, the, the way that people understood the message at that time, it was so interwoven in what they were doing that for us today, if we, he's convinced that, you know, this is a message that takes people from darkness to light. And for people to go from darkness to light requires something profound, not something that is um, pedantic, you know, because I was also talking about, you know, when we were talking about Dual Karnain and, you know, like who was he and all of these little debates that people would get into that had nothing to do with the meaning of the surah or the story, you know, he, he was saying that um, this is where, like when you when you build a relationship and you try to understand you know darkness to light it, it, you're you're looking you're hearing the important message of the narrative you're you know you're you're taking the book seriously you're understanding what will it take to go from darkness to light and that this is a book of ethics you know it's something heavy duty it's not something where you know we need to debate all the little details and so he's convinced that when you you know, accept number one that this is a profound book. It has a profound ethical message. To, um, that also the the surahs of the Quran have a particular meaning. Like each surah, there's a reason why this is a surah. There was something that was intended to be communicated. And if you build a relationship with the Quran on those premises, like this book is meant to guide you to something better, to something you know elevated and beautiful and you build that relationship, it will start to speak to you in that way. And when you think about what 
relationship the Muslims of today have with the Quran, you know, they don't see it as a book of central guidance that, you know, God is giving you something to find your way from darkness to light. They don't take it seriously. They don't, you know, understand that, I mean, this is the first time in, in our tradition that has approached the, you know, the Quran as each surah having its own meaning. I mean, other studies have approached the Quran thematically overall, but no one has ever said, you know, had the conviction, no, each surah actually has a specific meaning that was intended to be communicated. And I've noticed when you present to us the meaning of, you know, like even a, a small fragment of a, of a verse that has five words in it, you've taken the time to think about what does this mean? Like it could have said this, it could have said that. You know, it's stuff that we just recite and we completely gloss over and yet you take the time to really like, you know, extract the full meaning of something. And, and that's where I feel like, oh my God, this approach, you know, like what you're presenting to us is that ethic of taking it seriously and, and really, you know, so again, just trying to understand like how did the early Muslims get get that meaning, you know? And so I think that, you know, that was what the, the Sheikh had told me and, and it was so valuable. I recorded it, so inshallah's <laughs> there. Did I did I say that right? No, you did a good job. Okay, come through that. So. I didn't realize you were recording it. <laughs> it's because I'm good. I can turn it on without him noticing. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway that's part of my job. But anyway, so I hope that helps because it helped for me to understand like why the English translations are so, you know, so, um, what's the word? They're just, they're, they're unsatisfying. They are, they, they're so ineffective. They're, they're empty of this meaning and it's frustrating, you know? I mean, and so if you're not an Arabic speaker, I mean, I guess even if you are an Arabic speaker, you really don't even get this. But, um, so alhamdulillah. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Just that. Um, alhamdulillah. I just thought I would mention too that one of the um, one of the I guess um, losses that well not not losses but one of the things um, from the pain is that again um, the professor actually didn't get to prepare, which is interesting because um, usually he you know takes time to as I mentioned before review things and you know get good command of it but alhamdulillah i didn't notice <laughs> i'm sure no one noticed but just to say you know alhamdulillah that um you know the the level of knowledge is, is just so profound and um we're just we're so so grateful i mean i'm so grateful i i don't know um, how to fully express that and i feel like you know, even what you said in, in this surah about, you know, our responsibility to present a very beautiful tradition so that others will fall in love with it, I think is so profound and it's so important for our day and age when there are just so many ugly presentations of Islam that turn people away. Um, and everything, I mean, you, I know from a long time ago, you would always counsel people that you know, we as Muslims are, are ambassadors of the faith and we have to present our faith in the most beautiful way possible. And that's everything from how we talk about it to how we appear, to how knowledgeable we are, to how vigorously we you know, fight for justice and appear on the front lines of you know, whether it's protests or um, you know, in, in 
academic debates, social justice, you know, positions that we take, um, that we, we really should be impressive um, by humanity standards today. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, we're not anywhere near that. But I think it's, it's so like beautiful to see that, to point it out, you know, again, in, a, in such a brief surah, fun, you know, something so foundational that um, at a minimum to, to help others find and fall in love with God. It's just very beautiful. So thank you, alhamdulillah. Um, do you want to start us off, Rami? Sure. Thank you again for the lentil soup. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Never forgotten. <laughs> Thank you. Before I knew Sheikh doesn't like soup. Yeah, I, know. Um, I loved it. Um, I mean, yeah, the, my question is about Surat Al-Kaf, but just about Surat Al-Ala, I think, I mean, Surat like these and, and Ala stands out amongst them. I consider some of the most challenging chapters of the Quran because I think intellectually the material today was uh, not difficult but over and over the message is you know it's one thing to comprehend the intellectual message but internalizing the message and actually feeling it with in your heart, I think Surat Al-Ada is difficult, very difficult, um, and yeah, I think that came across in the Tafsir today very strongly. But my question from uh, about Surat Al-Kahf is uh, verse forty-five. Um, what is the meaning of it and the significance of it? Um, yeah. And also, can you let us know what the vicar are for, for both Surah, Kaf, and, well, okay. I assume this one is the whole entire story. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, um, Ana is um, the entire story, but uh, Kaf is, um, I didn't tell you, it's in, in, anyway, it's... You, you, you told us offline, but just to tell us officially. Uh, 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 I think you said it was 28 is one of them? 28 and 24. Yeah, 20, yeah, 20, 24. Yeah, 28. Okay, so 28 was the main one, and then 24 was one you said that you had used the vicar for a little bit, right? Yeah, no. Um, 28 is the main one. Is the main one. And then 24 was when he also yeah, used Osborne the Yeah, Osborne Nafsaka. Yeah, Osborne Nafsaka, 28 is the main one. And 24 was, I, I, I used it and then I switched back to 28. I started with 28 and then I went to 24. 
and then I switch back to 28. Um, okay, and the, the number was? 45, that Rami asked about. Yeah. So, first, um, Rami is just pointing out um, uh, Rami is pointing out the, that, like all the the the, the short sword, like even like "Qulu Allahu Ahad," "Qulu Allahu Ahad," "Allahu Samad," "Lam Yalid," "Wa Lam Yulad," "Wa Lam Yakul Lahu Kufuan Ahad," or "Qulu Ayyuhal Kafirun," or they're short. The meaning is obvious, but turning it to a lived reality is is challenging and that's that's what the, and with surat al-a'la tanzih is a, 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 a real tanzih uh, to fully rise to the to the challenge of tanzih um, is a pristine form of iman where you you do not associate partners with Allah, so for instance, you fear no one but Allah. You, um, you understand that despite all the false appearances, it is ultimately Allah's will that animates this universe and animates everything that um, is in existence. And Can you define Tanzia again? The tanzir is is the, the the not not associating or or understanding that God is beyond uh, the laws of causality. That God is beyond uh, the temporal wor world that is bounded by time and space. So God is beyond time and space. Um, Tanzir is to understand, I mean, in, theologically, then you go beyond that and you say to understand the sifat Allah, the, the attributes of Allah and the that, and the, the, the true nature of what Allah is. And but that gets us into, uh, let's leave the that aside because that's always a very difficult philosophical question. But the sifat is to, to understand <coughs> The attributes of Allah, Asma'ullah al-Husna, all the attributes, and to to internalize these attributes, that's all part of Tanzeeh. So when you say, al-Ala, and every time when we do sujood, it will say, Subhanahu Rabbi al-Ala, Subhanahu Rabbi al-Ala, you're putting the intellect, which is all focused here in the center of the forehead, and you're putting it on the ground and you're saying subhanahu rabbi ala so you're saying it, it the, the, the entire thing symbolizes is that allah i understand that my intellect dwells in the realm of causation it understands it it, it comprehends it does whatever it does but ultimately I understand that this intellect is indebted to you, bound by you, that you are the sovereign of this intellect. And so every time we say, Subhana Rabbi Al-Ala, we are saying something very profound, something very big. Um, 
although we don't internalize it. But subhanAllah is to, 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 to understand that Allah is, is, is not higher in terms spatially, but that Allah is superior. So although Allah is higher, but Allah is also nearer. Um, that Allah is with you wherever you are. And so, so the, the, the first, if you know, if, to, if you really internalize subhanAllah, if you truly internalize subhanAllah, uh, then you have, then you exist in full consciousness of the presence of Allah wherever you are and everything you do and everything you say. And if you have that full consciousness, then it becomes very difficult to do anything that is not becoming. I mean, imagine if, if you truly internalize that Allah is with you every, everywhere. Would you do anything that, you know, you, you imagine Allah's gaze upon you. Would you do anything that you would imagine Allah would gaze upon and be disappointed in? Uh, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't fight with people, you wouldn't argue with people, you wouldn't backbite people, you wouldn't gossip about people, you wouldn't, it, it just becomes impossible. So it is very profound, but it is, an, it is an aspiration. And I think Allah knows it's an aspiration. But then the other challenge of Surah Al-A'la is uh, the harmonization to exist in harmony with Allah's synchronicity. Um, it is, um, I remember reading in, in Qadi Abdul Jabbar's Al Mughni, um, you know, it's multi volumes, so I don't remember precisely where, but it was where he talks about that a, the he talks about the value of philosophy and he's talking about why he found reading Aristotle um, very valuable. And he, he says, I don't read Aristotle, it's just something to affect like, you know, I don't read Aristotle to know anything about Allah, but I read Aristotle to understand the logic of creation, which it is so intricate and so wonderfully measured that it requires a truly um, profound intellect or a very advanced intellect to, and then, but then once you under, you're trying to understand this measured universe, but you must exist in harmony with it, with it which we, the the the, sum, the 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 word we use for this is justice, cost, the balance. But yeah, it is difficult because to exist in harmony uh, means you don't take anything that is not yours. You don't transgress upon anything that you shouldn't transgress upon. You know your balance. You're a human being that is completely aware of my of my limits and to be completely aware of your limits you wouldn't hurt anyone 
you wouldn't injure anyone. You wouldn't, you know, treat anyone unjustly. Um, and so, yeah, so Rami is right. It is, it is very challenging, but it is also very inspirational. And I think that's why the Prophet ﷺ told us to recite it all the time in the hope that if you keep reciting it, you will reflect on it. And that as you reflect on it, it elevates your consciousness. It, 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 it cleanses you in, you know, to one degree or another. As to uh, Ayah 45, um, uh, what it says, first, what the مثل الحياة الدنيا كما إن أنزلناه من السماء فاقترض به النبات الأرض فاصبح حشيما تذروه الرياح وكان الله على كل شيء مقتدر. Um, that the translation is basically that give them a parable or or Allah gives a parable uh, that life on this earth is like water that comes um, and mixes with the elements of life to give birth to the matter of life, which is the, the nabat, the, the greenery, vegetation, uh, until it, it withers away and it becomes so weak that it is blown away with, with, by wind. And of course, the, the reason Rami is asking about this is that, okay, so why do we have this this particular ayah, I mean, because they, this ayah is mentioned right after the story of the two people who, the owners of the, the, the rich guy who owns a garden um, and the not so rich guy or the poor guy who is debating with the rich guy. And right after that, and right before Al-Mal Wal-Banun Wa Zinat Hayat Al-Dunya that money and children are the zina, the, um, uh, the, the, the joy of life on this earth, but that what remains is a salihat, good, uh, goodness. And as we said in the tafsir, that often this is misunderstood, that it is as if money and children are in, in one camp contrasted to goodness. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that money and children are sources of joy on this earth. But depending on how you use them, they could become baqiyat al-salihah, that they could become the goodies. So the, the question really that Rami is asking is, why is this ayah about the parable of life on earth um, right after the, the story of the, the discussion and right before the, the ayah about um, children and money and so on. And the, the crux of it is that the, 
it is very similar to the logic of resurrection or the logic of circularity of creation, birth, death, resurrection. And, but here that, of course, I'm, 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 not, I'm not going to go to the Sufi-esque tafsirs that, that read the water uh, in, in a metaphorical way and, and so on. But that ultimately the essence of life on this earth is it's like you are taking snapshots. If you if your snapshot is at the time before there is vegetation and other before the crop grows. So at the point where there are seeds and there's water falling. Here, the snapshot is one of promise, but not one of fulfillment. If you take the snapshot of after the crops have grown and lived for a period of time, but then dried up and are dying, that snapshot is not fulfilling because it is a snapshot of death and the aftermath of life, not life. So what's the, what, the other, the third snapshot is the snapshot of the actual crops in growth. Now notice what human beings do. And this is precisely why I, uh, 45 is there. Human beings avoid thinking of, of the mo moving motion picture. And they avoid looking at the snapshot of the beginning. And they avoid looking at the snapshot of the end. And so much of their consciousness is focused on the snapshot of the thriving of life. So they, they look at, it's like, um, you know, we so much of, look at so much of our, our, our media, our narratives, our, the way we, we, we you know, our, our culture. Our culture is so focused on the love story of, you know, young people, their, their first love or their biggest love or, you know, it, it is so much of our culture is focused on that, the sweet moment, not the work that comes before the birth, not the aftermath after the birth, but that, that, that moment of glory, the, the moment where you know, you, I, although I, I'm not a sports person, but the moment where you win the Super Bowl, the moment where you know you are falling in love and you have the sweethearts uh, in happiness, the moment where you are dancing and having fun, the moment where you are enjoying, but that is a false consciousness because it is a selective consciousness. We, you know, if if the narratives led to after the, the hot love story, you know, the, the, the worry about paying the bills, the 
debt owed to the IRS, the uh, bickering about finances, the bickering about the children, the divorce court, the, you know, whatever. We don't want to focus so much on that. But we don't also, also don't want to focus at what it took before these people got to the point where they became adults, able to engage in something fun in the first place. And because of that selective memory, we are always seeing life on Earth with a, a hopes, a, a, an endless sense of hopeless, hopefulness, hopefulness, that is often um, a, an unrealistic in its, in its nature and its demands. Like everyone is, is waiting, is hoping to be the lottery winner. Everyone is hoping to be the one that has the happy story. This area comes and sort of smacks us before telling us, um, listen, yeah, they, they, there's the money, there's the children, there are all the things that come. But it is, it is not a matter of the snapshot of the happy story you tell yourself. But it is a matter of what you do with God, what God gives you. So don't look at the picture of the crops as they grow and say, wow, this is so beautiful. Look at this wonderful garden. Look at what... In, how do you how do you negotiate how do you manage the inevitability of destruction so this death is coming destruction is coming but how can you manage that to turn it into baqiyat al-salihat how can you manage that to turn it into good that lasts and that's why it comes right there is you know focus on death you know after the party there will be the death it's inevitable it's all going to fall apart so preempt all of that by handling things to create lasting good Um, that is why we recommend watching criminal shows, ID Channel. <laughs> like always love to, we're always fascinated with what happens after the moment of glory and people lose themselves and start killing people and doing crazy things. So anyway, it's, it's good training. <laughs> um, and, and I guess also, you know, like illness too, because it focuses you on the end, you know. I think yeah. that's that's delivery. It's okay. um, so this, I'm just. This is a follow-on question to Rami's question. Um, I know you touched some of it, but maybe let me ask it anyway. You might have more to say. Um, following Rami's question, it seems like Surah Kaf drives a theme of patience in the face of knowing and living um, the truth, despite familiar or foreign society. How can we cultivate that in our tazkiyah? Tazkiyah is purification, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, 
I, I don't know, patients, there are, maybe the, the, this is, a bit, I, I found that there are two pathways to patients. One is the patients that comes from a profound iman, um, in that you, you, un, you, you, you understand that there is an ethical obligation upon you. And you are focused on the performance of the ethical obligation, but you leave entirely consequences to Allah. As a matter of Iman is sort of saying, uh, it, it is just the, the timing of, of, of when people might do this or accept this or not accept this is not my business. Um, th this, I mean, that, that is why people with a deep-seated iman, uh, it, it is not being pacifist, but it, it is in fact quite the contrary because you do what you, you believe is ethically mandated of you. But you ultimately just accept that the consequences are not yours. It, it, that's beyond your your jurisdiction. The but uh, the other thing that um, I have become convinced that people who become truly students of knowledge, the the thing that you learn when you um, become a true student of knowledge is how ignorant you are and how vast knowledge is and how uh, if, if you are not patient about um, learning, um, you lose your mind, you'll become insane. You know, you, you'll become a joke. Um, and so it's interesting, but I, I, I really became convinced that another way that you cultivate patience is becoming a very good student. Um, the, the more you learn, the, the, the more you... And then, you know, it, it dawns on you. It's like when I, I often talk to, to people around me about this, is that when it dawned on me, the moment it really dawned on me, the, the sad reality that I'm going to leave this earth not having read uh, all the books that I want to read. You know, there, there was a time in my life when you're young and foolish, I really thought I, I'm going to read all, all the books that I think I want to read. And I, and I used to, you know, think I'm going to read not just in English or Arabic, but all the languages that I want to read in. Um, and then it just, yeah, then the humility, the inevitable humility, it, it just, uh, you just come to terms with the fact that you're nothing. Um, you're, you're just nothing. You're, you, I mean, you're, you are something very big, but just only because Allah made you something very big by dignifying you as a human being. 
but objectively, in terms of just pure empirical, empirical data, there's just, uh, you'll, you'll never know. Not even as close as much as you want to know. And so, you know, any conclusion that, any advice, any conclusion, any, you know, thing that, that upsets you about the way the world is going is tempered by the fact that your knowledge is so limited. Allahu Allah. You know, so you just, you, you just, that, that moderates everything that you, you, um, you think, you want, you desire, you work for. Inshallah, there'll be books in heaven. Inshallah. And maybe I'll get a chance your to... Your library, the to, soul of your library will be inshallah for you. <laughs> so, I, I can, so I can finally finish. Uh, I want to all be able to read all the languages too. Yeah. Chinese and Russian. Well, you, you said in a previous halakha that heaven is as individual as the individuals. So yeah, I know like my heaven will not have a ton of books in a ton of languages, but yours will, inshallah. Did you have ya a Rabbi, question? Yeah, may Allah just allow us inshallah. to even come close. Inshallah, inshallah, we make it. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to have a book tree. Like a plot to put. My question's on Surah Al-Kahf. Given the, the effects of globalization on society, how do we interpret what stage would apply most to us? And what I mean by that, to give an example, is you have, in, in our society, we can basically say whatever the heck we want with impunity but in the Middle East, you will get arrested and killed. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we do have kind of a global society, and although we're very not united, we have a global ummah. We influence each other, and we impact each other. I mean, we have people who, who email us from Nigeria who mm -hmm. are, are seeing our material. So. What I mean, what phase do you think we're in, and how do we um, interrogate what our identity is as a society? Is it just Americans? Is it wider than that? Um, well, I mean, if America. Whether whether one likes it or not, America is dominant in the world, and it, it's like this: the the world is still the 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 dominant currency in the world is the American dollar. So that means that by definition, you 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 cannot get around. You know, if you don't like the dollar, you can go to the euro, but the euro itself 
is heavily influenced and heavily dependent on what happens with the dollar. Um, I mean, it, it, it is sort of a, a, a choice, an alternative without a real choice. Um, Euro, the dollar, um, and people often overlook this, but this is, is, is a, 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 the flow of information in the world, the geopolitics of the world, the, the, the financial institutions of the world. So, and that is why when, you know, when a group of people uh, uh, got together and decided that they're going to marry American politics to Jesus, um, the, the reality, but people just don't, what's the name of that book um, uh, that they made the documentary about? The Family. The Family. Uh, if you read that book, one of the things that just, unfortunately Muslims don't read, but one of the things that strikes you is that the number of Muslim leaders from like the leaders of Muslim countries from all around the world met, dined with, socialized with, attended the parties of, of the, the, the group of American politicians who wedded American politics to Jesus Christ. Even the, the Saudi politicians, the Emirati politicians, the Qatari politicians, the uh, Almani politicians, they, they were talking as if Jesus Christ is the uh, savior, Lord and Savior. It's not because they're Christian, but it is because if they want to play the, the game in the world today, what happens in America dominates. And then after America, Europe. And then, you know, you have Russia trying to muscle in a little bit, China trying to muscle in, but they, it's, it's still a, a, a world that we're still in the aftermath of the post-Cold War era. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because the fact of the matter is to say we're American Muslims and all we care about is what happens in America and what happens in the rest of the Muslim world doesn't matter to us like the people in the Islamic Center of Southern California do, is idiocy, it's insanity, it's highly immoral because you are at the center of what, you know, it is America that decides who gets to run the holy sites of Mecca and Medina? It is not Muslims. Muslims have no say in, you know, who runs Mecca and Medina, who owns Mecca and Medina, what buildings are are built in Mecca and Medina, you know, who built all these, all the renovations in Mecca and Medina that were made. Who, what are the companies that that made them? That built all these hotels and built that big clock, and it was American and European companies. You know, again, it's, so coming to terms with this reality means honesty in discourse. We need to go to the cave 
and have some very serious and honest thought, not rhetorical, not dogmatic, but profoundly advanced. You know, the level of discourse that I encountered when I was taking courses in economics and politics at Yale. You know, no rhetoric, but empirical facts. Then we, we, then we can think about, well, how do we manage this ethically so that we have a world that in which you, know, you don't have people that, uh, that go to the Ivy League schools and then they, they create this crazy institution that they call the family in DC where Jesus Christ is supposed to rule the world. Where are we as Muslims? I mean, so in my view, all these people that are persecuted in, in Muslim countries, A, they have an obligation to try to get out of there. But B, if Allah allows them to get out of there, if Allah doesn't allow them to get out of there, that's a different matter because then their situation is very difficult. Um, if Allah would have not allowed me to escape from Egypt, I would be dead. I have no doubt about that. I, I would be in prison, I would be tortured, I, I, either I would be a dead skeleton and you know, living in some Egyptian prison or I would be killed. Because that's what happens to anyone who dares think out of the mainstream in, in the vast majority of Muslim countries. So you have an obligation to get out. Well, if you get out, you have to understand that that was a gift from Allah. That was a hijrah. And if Allah gave you this gift, then you have an obligation to try to think about the place of Islam. Islam, as, as we said, Islam, in, I, I take Allah very seriously. When Allah says, the reason Allah sent this religion is to take you from darkness, from darkness to light, then then the question is, how are we going to contribute? We, we don't want to dominate. We don't want to, to we, we don't want to play an, uh, the, 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 the game of empires. We, you know, we, it's not that we don't want to, in fact, it, you know, but the question is morality, it's ethics. How are we going to contribute so that we help bring light to the world? take as many people out instead of the exploitative, you know, every time a country in Africa or Asia starts daring to think of controlling its own uh, of self-determination, we immediately sweep in and get the military of that country to stage a coup and then the, we it becomes a, a we buy the military with corruption and perks and gifts and it's a highly corrupt and immoral world system. There is a book called um, that every Muslim should, should read. Um, it's called Coup d'etat. It was written by an ex-American um, uh, CIA officer and it basically talks about how uh, the, it talks, a good part of it talks about the Muslim world and it talks about how the, the the 
the, the US and France and Britain and some other countries are committed to always keeping corrupt politicians in power in all of the former colonies of the world so that all the financial deals that existed in the colonial era would remain as is, unaltered, except for outer appearances. So, for instance, till now, no, all the countries, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, they, they can't sell their oil without reliance on French companies and the either the dollar or the euro. In other words, you can't get out of the, the sphere of influence of France. Um, same thing with, you know, let Egypt try to, to, to do anything, to, to, to even get out. We Muslims have a, a, a huge role to at a minimum, at a minimum, be the voice of honesty and conscience at a minimum, just instead of in our masajid sitting there and talking about hijabs and whether a woman is covering her ankle or covering her hair, what is this? We've turned our religion into the religion of stupids and idiots. What is this? No, in our masajid we should be talking about ethics and morality and what's fair and what's right. That's, that's our obligation. And, and it requires that we, at a minimum, demand higher standards in our institutions as Muslims, in our schools, in our centers. You know, no, we don't want speakers that put us to sleep and that tell us the same boring stuff over and over and over again. We don't want speakers who don't know anything about the world, and it's obviously they are basically the most illiterate human beings that were brought from overseas to come spew nonsense about nonsense. We want our institutions, we want when we spend time in our institutions to learn something, to be engaged, for our intellect and our soul to feel alive. So, sorry, you know, we demand higher standards. This is the type of thing that is, that will get us out of the darkness that we're in. But it is, um, you know, it, 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 uh, it's not gonna happen with, with everyone who's intelligent or educated abandoning Islamic institutions and running away because that's, you know, and, as a professor, every time I encounter an intelligent, educated Muslim in college, or in law school, or in graduate school, and the, the immediately I can I can predict the answer they're going to give me if I ask them anything about the Islamic Center. Or, oh, I, I stopped going there. You know, I, I don't. And it's always the intelligent ones, the ones who are you know not so intelligent. You can always predict they're they're fine. Um, no, it's, it's, it's not, it's a sad situation, it's not right. It, it's, you know, Islam, how can Islam be associated with, with, with ignorance and 
you know, the people, then, then those people just don't understand Islam. They, they really don't. Do you have energy for one last question? Okay, fine. Okay. Um, this is from Hoda. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Thank you always for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom. May Allah reward you and may Allah grant you the most excellent health, inshallah. We are all making dua for you, Professor. Thank you. On, on Surah Al-Kaf, is there a best time to read it? I understand it is recommended to read it on Fridays, but does the part of the day on Friday matter or is it recommended to read it anytime on Friday? And also um, another, uh, I'm going to read both questions from Huda. Um, in Ayah 82 in Surah Al-Kaf, it talks about the orphan boys who had a righteous father. Is it implied in the Ayah that the children of righteous parents will be taken care of by God? Thank you. Uh, okay, these are good questions. Um, uh, okay, the, the, about the time for reading uh, Surah Al-Kaf, um, it is recommended um, meaning it was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to read Surah Al-Kaf before the khutbah, before Jum'ah. However, um, if that's not possible, I mean, don't, don't, don't torture yourself to do that. It, 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 is, it, it, it is still the sunnah that you just read Surah Al-Kaf every Jum'ah. Um, if you can't get to it before the, the, the prayer, then just do it after. Um, you know, as, I think you'll be fine as long as you do it before Aisha prayer. Um, and again, it's a sunnah. I mean, uh, my, I, I remember my mother, may Allah bless her soul, I mean, she, she would always finish Surah Kaf right before Juma, you know, according to the to the original Sunnah. But um, but um, you know, the, everyone that talked about this from a fiqh court perspective um, just says that it, you know, just finish it after after Juma if you don't get the opportunity to do so before. Um, as to the the second question. It, it, this is actually, there's a lot written about this in, in, the, in theological sources. And basically, the, there, it's not a guarantee, but the, the salah al-aba, the, the, the fact that the parents were pious, um, among other things, it, makes their dua near to Allah. And, you know, any pious parent will always pray that their children um, and their their dhurriya, their grandchildren are, and that dua is near to, to Allah. And which means that there, although there are no guarantees because, uh, you know, Evil intervenes in, in a variety of ways, and we don't know what Allah's wisdom is, and sometimes Allah's wisdom includes that children be rewarded in the hereafter than, than in this earth. But that, but that 
the progeny of parents who were pious um, have a special status. You know, they, it, it is like, um, like an added layer of protection. Um, but no, but you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a guarantee. So, and, and here I, I think the, the moral of the story, if you notice that Khidr um, goes and fortifies a wall because uh, society is unjust. Now, Khidr is in Surat al-Kaf presented, he is presented as a person who is Allah's agent. But what if Khidr is not there? The clear import of the story is that then you have to become the agent of goodness. Of course, this doesn't mean that, as I said before, that the um, ghulam, that sort of the, the, the killing of the ghulam, who, that, it, it, you know, a lot of people think that he was a child, but he wasn't. He was a, he was a young, uh, young man who was a highway robber. Uh, but it, the point is, is Khidr is some, a symbol for what society should be doing. It is society that should be resisting an oppressive ruler who is stealing the property of people. It is society that should be fighting ingratitude in children and ingratitude in social structure itself and the, 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 the breakdown of social ethics. It is society that should be protecting orphans uh, and not just counting on Allah to do it for them. Uh, and, and that is re the, the real moral of the whole interaction with Musa and Khidr is, you know, uh, Khidr is, is like bringing our attention to say, well, here is Musa, here is Allah's prophet who has Allah's law, Mosaic law. But look at these real, real issues, real social problems, real moral predicaments. What, what are you going to do to embody the role that Khidr plays in this narrative. Um, I say this because I, I've, I've noticed um, in, um, in, 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 in so many Muslim societies, uh, the, in, in Islamic history, there was sort of a, a strong ethic like in the same way that it was understood that if someone took the Quran and threw it on the ground or stepped on it, it like immediately people would cringe like, oh my God, are you crazy? Do, do you know you're defying God? God will probably 
do something really horribly bad to you. There was that type of ethic about orphans too. That there was sort of just a social ethic like, oh my God, you don't touch orphans. You know, if even if you're a criminal, like you, you would commit crimes against that. If someone tells you I'm an orphan, it's like, oh, okay, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not, then, you know, God will strike me down or something like that. And that was lost to the point that in the modern age, I've, I've noticed, I mean, I'll talk about like people that I know in Egypt, families that I know in Egypt, that stealing the money of orphans has become like uh, the regular type of thing. It's what you expect now to happen. Everyone steals. Like you have an uncle, you have an aunt, you have a, and they just take, steal the money that belongs to orphans. And it is one of the gravest sins that you can possibly commit. You know, it is, it, it is like a sure ticket to hellfire. Like if you're gonna steal the money that belongs to orphans, might as well stop praying and fasting because there's no point. But what, you know, what do you say? Um, again, you know, our mosques, instead of giving, sitting there and, and obsessing about whether women are covering their ankles or not, talk about things that actually matter. You know, that this Islam is about. Oh, may, may, may Allah give us the strength and, and patience and wisdom. Thank you so much. I know there's so much more that we could talk about, but this is so valuable. And I, I think, alhamdulillah, especially with Surah Kaf, I think it just completely puts everything on its head for in terms of what Muslims thought they knew about it. It's extremely special. Oh. I mean, it just, you know, even struck me as you're talking about how, okay, Fidr is the teacher or the man is the teacher of Musa. Yeah. And so what he is dealing with in terms of elevated justice or things that we don't understand, teaching the law. Mm -hmm. So law, by definition, takes a subservient position to ultimate justice that exactly. God sees. So that's a really exactly. powerful message for people who are so obsessed with law being the source of morality. So alhamdulillah, thank you so, so much. So, okay, everybody, keep your prayers coming, inshallah. Uh, we are looking forward to hopefully having another amazing halakha this Saturday. Inshallah. Um, inshallah, hopefully, inshallah, Sheikh will be well enough to give the, the khutbah on Friday. We're praying, so yeah, please keep us in your prayers, keep him in your prayers, and um, thank you for, for being with us. It's always wonderful to be here together through this. So alhamdulillah, thank yes. you.